All through this, Ezekiel is called son of man. For thousands of years, and in these cultures in the ancient Near East, the son of man phrase means I am human. And that makes sense. If you're the son of a man or human, we talked about this. Whatever the son of X is, the son is automatically, in essence, the same thing as whatever X is. When Elijah is leading the prophets and they're called the sons of the prophets, it doesn't mean that they're all literal biological sons of prophets. It means that the son is the same thing as a prophet. They're equal. So that of turns into an equal sign if you want to make a mathematical equation in Hebrew. So prophet of equals son. That means the son is a prophet. And when they're called sons of God, it's the son of a God. So the of is an equal. So the sons are God. Now, they're not biologically descendants of God. They're just the same essence as God. They're a God. They're a supernatural being, an Elohim. Elohim is a better word to use. We already talked about that. So the son of man is, this son is equal to human. So it's a way of saying I'm human. Now we would say, well, I'm only human. And that's kind of the idea. And so when he's getting visions of these living creatures and cherubim, and he's seeing God and all this kind of stuff, God is speaking to him and he says, son of man, get up and do this. Son of man, write this down. Son of man, go to the people and speak to them. And God is making it very clear that Ezekiel is merely a human in comparison to who God is. And this is a phrase that is used over and over and over again in that culture and over 30 or 40 different times in the book of Ezekiel, more than this book than any other book. Now, it's important to understand because that's what God is making clear. You are merely a human. Now, that's not an insulting thing for God to say. It's merely emphasizing category differences, thing that he's saying. Now, once again, when we get to the book of Daniel, that phrase is going to change drastically when Daniel gets a vision that will redefine what that Son of Man phrase actually means. But until then, for thousands of years, Son of Man has meant you are human. He has seen this vision, and he throws himself face down before the throne, the chariot of God, and the voice begins to speak. And in chapter 2, verse 1, the voice, Yahweh, said to me, Son of Man, stand on your feet, and I will speak with you. As you spoke to me, a wind, and sorry, as he spoke to me, a wind came into me and stood me up on my feet, and I heard the one speaking to me. So the wind of God literally like lifts him up on his feet so that he can begin to stand at attention and listen to Yahweh. He said to me, Son of man, I am sending you to the house of Israel to rebellious nations who have rebelled against me. Both they and their fathers have revolted against me to this very day. The people to whom I am sending you are obstinate and hard-hearted, and you must say to them, this is what the sovereign Yahweh says. Now, he says he's sending them to Israel, but remember, Israel was sent off into exile. Remember, before the kingdom split in Solomon's reign, so all throughout Israel's history under Moses and the judges and, so the, and David and Saul and all of them, Israel referred to all 12 tribes of the nation. It was all 12 tribes, and the north and the south. They're one kingdom, one nation. When the kingdom split after Solomon's death, I told you from this point on, the 10 tribes in the north are called Israel, and the one tribe in the south is called Judah. And from that point on, Israel only referred to the 10 tribes in the north, and Judah referred to the tribe in the south. 
But now that Israel's gone off, gone off into exile, and Judah's now really close to their exile, from this point on, Israel now refers to the 12 tribes again. It refers to the whole people of God. And they're going to be referred to that in the book of Daniel, which is an exilic, it's them in exile, Ezra and Nehemiah. When they come back from exile, Israel is Israel. It's all the tribes. Now, mostly it will be the tribe of Judah who returns. Out of all the tribes, the greater percentage of Jews that return will come from the tribe of Judah, but all tribes will be represented. So at this point, when the name Israel is being used, it refers to all the tribes of Israel. So it's only that time between the split after Solomon's death and the book of Ezekiel, really, that Israel only refers to the ten tribes in the north. So you would say, well, why would you go to Israel? They're in exile, destroyed and dead. Well, because he's unifying the nation again. And as Judah goes into exile, they will go into exile to join Israel, whatever is there. And they will become unified. And we've already seen this in Jeremiah, but he's also already prophesied that he will make a covenant with both Israel and Judah. And that's important to understand. So this is who God is sending them to. And Yahweh says this, chapter 2, verse 5. And as for them, whether they listen or not, for they are rebellious house, they will know that a prophet has been among them. But you, son of man, do not fear them, and do not fear their words, even though briars and thorns surround you, and you live among the scorpions. Do not fear their words, and do not be terrified of the looks that they give you. For they are a rebellious house, and you must speak my words to them, whether you list, they listen or not, for they are rebellious." As for you, son of man, listen to what I am saying to you. Do not rebel like the rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I'm about ready to give you. Jeremiah was constantly filled with fear all the time and constantly depressed. And I totally understand and have all sympathy for, for what he went through. So when God comes to Ezekiel, he's saying, do not be afraid. We're not going to see that same fear, trepidation, trepidation and depression that we saw in Jeremiah with Ezekiel. Now, don't get me wrong. Ezekiel's still going to be afraid. There's still going to be depression, that kind of stuff, but not to the same extent of Jeremiah. This is what he sees. Verse 9, Then I looked and realized a hand was stretched out to me, and in it was written a scroll. And he unrolled it before me, and it had writing on the front and the back written on it were laments and mournings and woe. And he said to me, Son of man, eat what you see in front of you. Eat this scroll. And then go and speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth, and he fed me the scroll. He said to me, Son of man, feed your stomach and fill your belly with the scroll I am giving to you. So I ate it, and it was sweet like honey in my mouth. He's having them eat paper and eat a scroll. So no calories, no fat, none of that kind of stuff. And when he eats it, it goes in his stomach, and it tastes sweet like honey you might feel like, hey, that feels kind of familiar because that's exactly what happens to John in the book of Revelation. He's told to eat the scroll. Except with John, it's sweet in his mouth and bitter in his stomach. And we'll talk about that when we get to Revelation. So the idea seems to be here. Remember, this is a vision. But even if it was real, it's God, and he can make anything happen. But the idea seems to be is that the word of God is going to sustain Ezekiel. He says, do not be afraid, Ezekiel. Here are the words I'm going to give you. Eat it. And so he's making the words of God a part of who Ezekiel is. Ezekiel's on the divine council of Yahweh right now. 
and the word of God is going to sustain him. You have nothing to fear. No one will hurt you. I will protect you. My word will sustain you, and nothing stops the word of God. And the, the sweetness seems to be more of that most of Ezekiel is going to be the promises of God. There are going to be some depressing things that Ezekiel is going to see, and there's going to be a few depressing messages of judgment that Ezekiel is going to pronounce. But largely speaking, Ezekiel has a lot of hopeful promises, especially when we start getting into chapter the later 30s and into the 40s. It's just mostly positive. And so there seems to be a sweet message there. He said to me, verse 4, Son of man, go to the house of Israel and speak my words to them, for you are not being sent to a people of unintelligible speech and difficult language, but to a house of Israel, not to many peoples of unintelligible speech and difficult language whose words you cannot understand. Surely if I had sent you to them, they would listen to you. But the house of Israel is unwilling to listen to you because they are not willing to listen to me, for the whole house of Israel is hard-hearted and Hard-headed and hard-hearted. So he's saying, look, I'm not sending you to foreign nations that won't understand your language and you won't understand them. This will be super easy. It's your own people. But at the same time, they're not going to listen to you because they're hard-headed and hard-hearted. And if I actually sent you to other people, they would actually respond. But not my people. Not my people. Verse 8. I have made your face adamant to match their faces and your forehead hard to match their foreheads. I have made your forehead harder than flint, like diamond. Do not fear them or be terrified of the looks that they give you, for they are a rebellious house. So I'm preparing you for the mean girls at middle school. He's basically like equipping them to him to go into his world. And so he seems to be more fortified in his soul, his bearing, his countenance than maybe even Jeremiah was. And he said to me, Son of man, take all my words that I speak to you to heart and listen carefully. Go to the exiles, to your fellow countrymen, and speak to them. Say to them, this is what the sovereign Yahweh says, whether they pay attention or not. So he's being sent to his own people in exile. And that's who his ministry is going to largely be to, is the people in exile. Now remember, the people in exile are the best of the best. Now you're going to find out they're still stubborn and hard-hearted and rebellious and but they're not so hard-hearted that they've shook their fist at god and said forget you he is going to preach to those who god has said i will carry you in exile and unlike israel exile was death and judgment but with judah and babylon exile is remnant protection and i will bring you back however you're still a hard-hearted people and you're still sinful and i still need to witness and talk to you So that's who he's going to minister to. Verse 12, Then a wind lifted me up, and I heard a great rumbling, a sound behind me, as the glory of Yahweh rose from its place. And the sound of the living beings' wings brushing against each other, and the sound of the wheels alongside of them. A great rumbling sound. A wind lifted me up and carried me away, and I went bitterly, my spirit full of fury, and the hand of Yahweh rested powerfully on me. I came to the exiles of Tel Abib, who lived by Keber River, and I sat dumbfounded among them there where they were living for seven days. So the Spirit of Yahweh picks them up and starts like flying them across refugee camps to this new location. Verse 16, 
At the end of seven days, the word of Yahweh came to me. Son of man, I have appointed you as a watchman. Remember, that's another word for prophet. For the house of Israel, whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you must give them a warning from me. When I say to the wicked, you will certainly die, and you do not warn them. You do not speak out to warn the wicked to turn from his wicked deed and the wicked lifestyle so that they may live. The wicked person will die for his iniquity, but I will hold you accountable for his death. So God is making it very clear. If there are wicked people, and I call you prophet to go and call them to repentance and speak to them, and you refuse and they die for their sins, you are held accountable. Now that's the same judgment he's holding us to. Remember, we're the new prophets, all of us, because we have the spirit of Yahweh in us. The divine counsel is in us, and God is holding him accountable. But as for you, if you warn that wicked, the wicked, and he does not turn from the wicked deed and from his wicked lifestyle, he will die for his iniquity, but you will have saved your own life. So if you obey God and you warn him and he chooses not to listen to you, then you did only what God told you to do, and there's nothing else there. When a righteous person turns from his righteousness and commits iniquity, I set an obstacle before him and he will die. If you have not warned him, he will die for his sin. And the righteous deeds he performed will not be considered. But I will hold you accountable for his death. However, if you warn the righteous person not to sin, he does not sin. He will certainly live because he was warned and you will save his own life. And once again, it flips for the righteous. If a righteous person is living righteously, but there's something that's going to cause them to stumble and sin, and I call you as a prophet to warn them and you don't, then you're held accountable when they stumble and sin. If you do go to them and call, call them out and they don't listen to you and they fall into wicked behavior or a sin, then it's not on you. And so I think what God is doing very clearly here is, Ezekiel, your only task is to obey me. If I tell you to go and speak, do it. And if the nations don't listen and the people don't repent, that's not on your shoulders. And depending on your personality, some people are willing to say, you know what, I did what I could, and they didn't respond, it's on them. And other people just eat themselves up inside, like, could I have said more? Could I have done more? It's like, oh, but I didn't do enough, and that kind of stuff. And God says, no, don't bear that burden. And I think that was what God is saying. The only burden you have to bear is obeying God and doing what he tells you to do. If you do that and the people don't respond, that's not your burden. That's not your burden. That's their burden. Your only burden is obedience. Their burden is to obey. That's not your burden. And your burden is to obey. And that's not their burden. And that's what God is saying. Verse 22, The hand of Yahweh rested on me there, and he said to me, Get up and go to the valley, and I will speak with you there. So I got up and went to the valley, and the glory of Yahweh was standing there, just like the glory I had seen by the Keber River. So you see that whirlwind of fire, the chariot of God. I threw myself face down. Then a wind came into me and stood me up on my feet. And Yahweh spoke to me and said, Go shut yourself in your house. As for you, son of man, you will put rope, they will put ropes on you and tie you up with them, so you cannot go out among them. I will make your tongue stick to the roof of your mouth so that you will be silent and unable to reprove them, for they are a rebellious house. But when I speak with you, I will loosen your tongue, and you must say to them, this is what the sovereign Yahweh says. Those who listen will listen, but the indifferent will refuse, for they are a rebellious house. God basically says, now go back home 
and I'm going to tie you up and make your tongue stick to your mouth. Now, that's probably not literal. It's probably metaphorical as I want you to, to shelter in place. <laughs> I want you to have no contact with anybody because I want you to prepare yourself for what is coming. I am calling you to be a prophet. Now, what's interesting is when Isaiah was called to be a prophet, God cleansed his lips and said, go. But when Ezekiel is being called to a prophet, he's, he's putting him in his house in isolation, silent, silence, and saying, prepare. Prepare your heart, pray, get ready, because there's a huge thing coming. And it seems to be the same thing that happened with Paul. Remember when Paul converted on the road to Damascus, he isolated himself for a long time and had to study. I mean, he had to reshift his paradigm on a lot of things. And this is what he's doing with Ezekiel. So Ezekiel is going to go into hiding, not hiding. Um, he's going to isolate himself in his house in the refugee camp for an extended period of time to get ready for this. When God finally calls Ezekiel, it gets weird. <laughs> he has Ezekiel do some really weird things. Now remember, I mentioned this already, but if you saw some guy on Ohio State campus doing this stuff and calling himself a prophet and speaking the word of God, you'd be like, you'd be looking at friends like, so, I'm so sorry, this is not Christianity. This guy is weird. This is... But maybe our definition of sane is not completely accurate. And maybe we have no right to say that's not from God unless God is specifically saying to us. There's some weird things that God is going to call Ezekiel to do. And the first thing that he's going to call Ezekiel to do is to carve a map of the Sea of Jerusalem. So he's going to take some block of wood and carve a map, a 3D, I don't know how realistic and how scale it is, but a map that will be noticeable enough to everybody else that this is the map. And a block of wood. And he's going to build a siege around it. So this city is symbolically representing Jerusalem. The siege that is around the city symbolically represents the Babylonians coming to attack Jerusalem. And then he is to lay on his side for 390 days. Now, most likely, most scholars do not believe that he's lying on his side for 390 days, 24-7. Okay, talk about bed sores. So it's more likely that he will go out there for a period of time and camp out on his side and then go back home and do his day, eat his meals, that kind of stuff. This is his New York City street show, so to speak, that he's going to do. And he is to put a pan between himself and the city. And he is to just stare at the city with the pan between him and the city. The pan seems to be symbolic of God's judgment coming down to, like, smash them. And the stare is God's wrath. And the idea is that God's wrath and God's judgment is not going to be turned away. Is not going to be turned away. Now, the 390 years, sorry, 390 days were told corresponds to 390 years. The problem is we have no idea what that number means. If you do the math and you say, okay, it counts back from here, the, there's no counting. Like, where does this start? Where do you start counting 390 years? There's nothing in the text that hints at when the clock starts. The best guess is the clock starts now. So if you look back 390 years, that puts you in 539, oh, sorry, from 539 B.C., because that's the current year, it puts you at 983 B.C. That's right in the middle of David's reign. 
And no scholar knows what to do with that. Okay, there's literally like, every scholar's like, we have no idea. There's no guesses. <laughs> there's, there's like, because David's reign was probably the most godly time period of all of Israel other than Joshua's time period. And so that's when they begin to sin. Now, obviously, God has made it very clear that Israel began to sin way back when they came out of Egypt with the golden calves and that kind of stuff. But if that's what he's trying to communicate, then why not go back all the way to that point? Why in the middle of David's reign when that's like the best that it ever got? Why is that? And it's not even the end of David's reign or the end of Solomon's reign. And so we really don't know what this means. There, is God trying to communicate something else? Is it completely metaphorical? Have we lost the meaning of what these numbers mean because we're a different culture? We have no idea. So he tells them to do this. And he tells them to clear um, the Ezekiel was to then bind one of his arms up and bear his other arm facing the city, which represented Yahweh's intention to come against the city. And he's a lie there. And then God told him, Every day, I want you to build a fire, and I want you to build it out of human feces. It would be dried human feces. And I want you to cook your food over the human feces to represent that the people have become unclean. Now, eating food off of burning, dried-out human feces makes somebody unclean. And Ezekiel, like, freaks out. And you're like, who would do that? Well, the first thing you need to understand is this is a great fuel source. Cow patties, if you've ever seen, if you come from farms, when they dry out, there's a lot there. And that's free firewood, basically. So, and and once it dries out, there's no smell or anything like that. And it's no different than any, I mean, you don't even know what's in your wood when you pick up wood in the forest and that kind of stuff, like algae and fun and all that kind of stuff. It's it's not toxic. It's not un, unclean. It's not going to make you sick, and it's not smelly or any kind of way. It's just a good fuel source. And when you in the American Indians, they took the feces of animals and put them in their coffee and drank it to get high and all this kind of stuff to contact the spirits and stuff. So, lots of people have done lots of things in the name of religion throughout human history. The thing is that doing over animal is okay, but doing over human feces makes you unclean. And so what God is trying to symbolically represent is that Israel has become unclean. But Ezekiel, is a, he sees himself as a priest. And cleanliness has been more important to him than anybody else in Israel because he's been trying to be preparing for a priesthood his entire life. And he says, no, 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 God, I can't do that. I will become unclean. Now, when you say no to God, that doesn't go well. But his reasoning is really good. I don't want to become unclean and lose my relationship with you. And that God actually says, okay, that's fine. You can do it over cow feces. And you can cook it over it. But the ideas symbolically represent that he's become unclean. So this is what he's to do. For 390 days, for over a year, he's going to go out every day, lie on his side, put this model out, all that kind of stuff, eat food over the cow dung, and demonstrate to the people that this exile is going to come. Then he commanded Ezekiel to shave his head in public. He gets a razor out, he shaves his hair off, and he is to divide his hair into three piles. And he is a third of it, he is to burn on the map of the city. And this is symbolically represent that God is going to burn the city of Jerusalem down to the ground. And, a, and, in, um, and they're going to die in a plague. And he's going to take another third of the hair and throw it up in the air and hit it with the sword. 
and just like smack it all up and everything. And that symbolically represents that God is sending an army in order to attack them and kill them by the sword. Everybody who escapes the burning city and the, the plague that comes in the city will die by the sword of the Babylonians. And then he has to take another third of his hair and just scatter it to the winds. And the idea is those who escape the burning of the city, the, the sword that comes in the city will go into exile. They'll be scattered among the people and they will be no more. And so those are the three judgments that God is going to bring on the city. Now remember God made clear to Jeremiah, those who are burned in the city and those who are killed by the sword, they're the extremely wicked people who do not follow God. And those who are scattered, they're the remnant. They're the ones who at least had some kind of righteousness in them. Now, some of them might be righteous like Abraham, which wasn't really that righteous, or just a little bit of righteousness like Lot. But either way, there's going to be enough that they're going to be rescued and they're going to be taken to exile and be a part of the remnant. Only then when Yah- would Yahweh's judgment be satisfied. And what God is saying to Ezekiel is that when this happens, God will finally be satisfied. Israel will finally have paid for their sins, except for they had to stay in exile for 70 years for every year that they did not do the sabbatical year. But he will no longer be angry at them. And that's important because in chapter 11, we're going to see the glory of God going to Babylon to dwell with his people. And even though they still have to stay in time out for 70 years before they come back to land, God is no longer angry with them. There's no more judgment on them anymore. They will live in peace in Babylon during that time period. Then Yahweh gave Ezekiel two prophecies. This is in chapter 6 and chapter 7. The first prophecy, he gave him a judgment... He gave him a judgment that reiterated the previous object lessons. The people of Israel and Judah had erected altars to worship the pagan gods, and God was prophesying you're going to go into exile. So at this point, that the prophecy is going to explain the demonstration, if they hadn't figured that out already. Then in chapter 7, Ezekiel was then given another prophecy. Ezekiel was then to prophesy the coming judgment of Babylon against Judah. So the first prophecy is I'm going to judge you, and the second prophecy is I'm going to use Babylon. Now, at this point, most people know this. Remember, Jeremiah has already made this pretty clear. And currently, Jeremiah and Ezekiel are contemporaries. They're just in different cities. And Daniel and Ezekiel are contemporaries. They're just in the same city. So right now, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel, as the popular ones go, are all contemporaries. They're all living at the same time. And remember, when we end the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah was left in the ashes of a destroyed Jerusalem. That's going to happen in chapter 33 in this book. So while he's prophesying to the exiles in Babylon, Ezekiel is, Jeremiah's in Jerusalem prophesying to them. And unfortunately, Jeremiah's getting the shorter end of the stick of unpopularity and all that kind of stuff. At the same time that that's happened, Daniel's in the palace and Nebuchadnezzar's trying to brainwash him and his friends. And he's going to be moving up in the ranks. And so David's up in the palace, moving up in the ranks as an ambassador. Ezekiel's in a refugee camp in Babylon, like within a stone's throw of the palace. And Jeremiah's in Jerusalem. And they're all prophesying. Well, Daniel's not a prophet, but we'll talk about that later. But Daniel's serving God obediently and witnessing. And Ezekiel's prophesying. Jeremiah's prophesying all as contemporaries. They already know that Jerusalem is going to be destroyed by the Babylonians. 
But remember when we were going through the book of Jeremiah, they thought, no, that won't happen. The people in Jerusalem were like, no, that's not going to happen. They already went into exile. We've already been punished. God will bring them back one day. And the people in exile are like, we're going to return one day. We're going to return one day. Remember all the prophets prophesied we're going to return? And Jeremiah's like, no, 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 no. It's, the return is much later than what you think. So even though they know this is going to happen, they're not believing it. They're not believing it. So just as Jeremiah is trying to convince them that you need to believe it, Ezekiel is trying to convince the exile they need to believe it. The difference is that Jeremiah is up against hundreds of false prophets who are contradicting him. There are no other prophets in the refugee camps with Ezekiel. So he does not face an opposing message like Jeremiah did. So that probably is why Ezekiel is less depressed than maybe Jeremiah. So these are the prophecies that God is giving him. 